Welcome to this AMPT podcast, where Locomotor Function Knowledge Translation Task Force members, Megan Bratz and Ryan Grecki, discuss their experiences with common therapist belief barriers to implementing high-intensity gait training and provide recommendations for addressing them. The information in this podcast is meant for the benefit of physical therapists. It is not meant for personal medical diagnosis or treatment. Individuals should always consult an appropriate medical practitioner with questions. My name is Ryan Grecki, and I'm a member of the Knowledge Translation Task Force for the Clinical Practice Guideline to Improve Locomotor Function, uh, published in January of 2020. Our task force aims to target the barriers that exist to translating the action statements from the CPG into clinical practice. Um, and we're here today to address the translation of a primary recommendation intervention, uh, moderate to vigorous intensity walking training. Um, we're going to address the barriers of therapist beliefs in clinic culture. Um, and we have Megan Bretz joining us, another member of the Knowledge Translation Task Force to help us shed some light on her professional education experience and the evolution of her practice. Thank you, Ryan. I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you guys today. I am a physical therapist and I work at Ascension St. Vincent, which is located in Evansville, Indiana, which is in the southwestern corner of the state. I treat in both the inpatient rehab and the outpatient neuro settings, and I have done so for about the last 18 years. I'm the director of our neurologic program, um, residency program for physical therapists, and I also serve as one of the clinical mentors in both inpatient and outpatient. And I have a pretty cool knowledge broker type role within our organization, um, which is aimed at helping clinicians translate evidence to neurologic practice. Uh, like you, I'm also an adjunct faculty member at the University of Evansville in the doctoral PT program. So I myself, I've been practicing for a little over five years now. And I work at the Zablocki VA Medical Center in Milwaukee, Wisconsin in the outpatient neuro setting. Um, I'm involved with some adjunct teaching at Marquette University, and I'm a mentor for their associated neurologic PT residency program. And I have a little slanted view, so I've essentially been trying to implement high-intensity gait training essentially right out of residency. Um, but it seems that high-intensity gait training is not widely implemented, um, and many therapists have concerns about the implications of high-intensity gait training, um, specifically that it can conflict with what therapists have traditionally done or focused on while retraining gait after neurologic injury. So I'm really glad that uh, Megan, you're here um, with us this morning uh, to share some of your experiences and perspectives related to this topic. So um, can you just provide a little bit more background about yourself from a clinical perspective, what kind of training you've had, et cetera? Sure. So I graduated from the University of Evansville in 2001. And in 2005, I attended a two-week certification course in the NeuroIFRA approach. And these concepts really directed my practice for about the next seven or so years um, while I was working very part-time raising my young family. Prior to attending this course, I'd also attended some NDT and PNF weekend workshops, which really seemed like the right thing to do right out of school. These were approaches that had been touched on in my entry-level education, so it made sense at that time to increase my skill set around them specifically. 
I really loved and, and still do love this patient population, but felt very overwhelmed by the complexity of this patient population. And these approaches, all three of them together, provided a much desired framework or a roadmap to managing this patient population. So shortly after my formal training in neuroifra, my son was born. That was followed pretty quickly by my daughter, and I stepped away from the field at that time. I returned to work uh, full-time in 2012, and I was pointed towards the 2008 Kleiman Jones paper on the principles of experience-dependent neuroplasticity. Somehow I had missed that over the course of the years, which absolutely changed my practice and led to my attendance at more evidence-based courses that approached neurorehabilitation and specifically the efforts to improve walking differently with a focus on the principles of exercise physiology, motor learning, motor control, and biomechanics. In 2016, I earned board certification in neurologic physical therapy, which eventually led to the current role that I have and development of our neurologic residency program for physical therapists. Great. Um, so it sounds like you had a bit of a shift. So how would you compare your practice patterns now compared to earlier in your career? Right. So totally different. Um, early in my career, I prioritized movement quality and the restoration of normal movement patterns post-injury to the nervous system. Patients um, mastered sitting before standing and before walking. There was a heavy focus on handling, both facilitating and inhibiting movements. If the patient's movement started to fall apart while practicing a task, for example, if errors were made, the practice was stopped for fear of encouraging the development of abnormal movement patterns. My practice now is completely different than this. I prioritize practice of the specific tasks that my patients want to improve upon, which is typically walking, and sessions are structured so that the amount and the intensity of the practice is maximized for that individual patient. Um, the neurofacilitation treatment techniques, they, they place a large emphasis on really targeting only normal movement patterns and really avoiding errors. Um, whereas with high intensity gait training, there's really not a major focus on normalizing kinematics during training. So um, what made you sort of change your practice and what was the process like for you to make such a drastic change? So in the fall of 2012, upon my return to full-time work, I was asked to present internally at a stroke rehabilitation workshop that was being delivered to our physical and occupational therapists. And I asked a respected colleague in the, in the field, um, she was a former classmate and a friend who I knew also to be NDT trained to, to take a look at the presentation. Um, I did not anticipate her response, which basically challenged everything that I was doing. Uh, she was actually the one who sent me the 2008 Climbs and Jones publication, along with the 2009 presidential perspective written by the current neurosection president at that time, Kathy Sullivan, that looks very similar to the recently published Moving Forward position paper. I remember very clearly trying to match what I was doing with my patients to what the evidence was suggesting we should be doing, and specifically that it's important to maximize the active ingredients of task specificity, 
the amount of practice and the intensity of practice and thinking this does not line up at all with what I'm doing. I'm not prioritizing any of this at all. I'm prioritizing movement quality. I have patients who have walking goals and we're hardly working on walking at all because we haven't mastered these other tasks like sitting and standing. And honestly, it would look horrible if we tried to walk. So if this is true, and I really do need to practice walking to get better at walking, I'm not doing enough of it to promote a change in my patient's capacity to walk. I also have no idea where my patients are at from an intensity standpoint, which actually in and of itself is a little terrifying, given the fact that the patients I'm engaging with have had a known cardiovascular event. So I spent some time with researchers who were studying and prioritizing these active ingredients during therapy sessions, specifically in Dr. Hornby's Locomotor Recovery Lab in Chicago, where data happened to be being gathered for his 2015 feasibility study post-stroke and inpatient rehab. And I attended one of the earlier Walk the Walk courses in which he and others talked about how we could and should translate this evidence to the clinical setting. And I just started doing it and measuring the functional changes that my patients were making. It was really hard. I was surrounded by clinicians that either embraced the traditional approaches that I used or addressed the impairments that contributed to the walking dysfunction with things like strengthening and balance interventions. I can remember really clearly the first patient that I tried this with and just thinking, you know what? I'm just gonna give it a whirl. This guy can hardly sit up on the side of the bed and this is not what I would have done, but I'm gonna unbury the light gate and we're just gonna start walking. And we did. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I think that's an important piece is like with any intervention, when you're unfamiliar with it, just starting can be some of the hardest, the hardest piece. Yeah, absolutely. Change is hard and it's hard when you're kind of the only person doing it too. It's hard, it's hard to get motivation and support. Um, yeah, so you alluded to um, the kinematics sort of feature. So when we're implementing high intensity gait training, what sort of defines successful walking? If, you know, if we don't train normal kinematics, what should we care about? What should we look for in our patients? Um, are we just setting people up in a harness and starting the treadmill without any concerns of how they move or, you know, how is high intensity gait training? How is it skilled care? Right. So that is a really great question. It's a question that, that I get all the time. And I think it's a, it's a top concern on clinicians' minds. So when we assess our patients and we are delivering interventions around walking, instead of looking at them from a kinematic perspective, we are looking at them biomechanically, um, specifically within the subcomponents of gait. And these four subcomponents are propulsion, stance control, limb advancement, and lateral or postural stability. So propulsion is defined as the ability to move the body in an intended direction, which is typically forward. Oftentimes it's just referred to as speed. Stance control is defined as the ability to stand, to bear weight without collapsing or buckling at either the trunk or at the limbs. Limb advancement is just that. It's advancing the swinging limb beyond the stance leg to prevent a fall. And lateral stability is really just balance or the ability to, to maintain an upright posture. 
So there are criteria for success in each of these subcomponents, but it's also important to understand that some degree of error is critical for learning, meaning that the first time someone is unsuccessful in, say, advancing their leg, we're not getting in there and doing it for them. By doing it for them, they don't figure out how to do it themselves, plus the intensity of practice is lessened because they aren't physically working as hard. And we know that that's an important training parameter to maximize. And just because we're not prioritizing movement quality does not mean that it's irrelevant or we're not worried about it. Sometimes when we push people hard, the movement doesn't look great and the potential for misstepping or losing balance is greater. So we need to take great care to protect limbs and joints from trauma and use fall protection and sometimes body weight support systems to ensure safety and to ensure that we can practice the task of walking. We use a lot of bracing, wrapping, taping. We put shoes on patients. Um, we just aren't as concerned with the exact movement strategy that people are using to walk as long as it's safe and it's not causing pain. So that's what we care about. And that's what I'm thinking about when I'm watching patients move. How are they performing in each of these biomechanical subcomponents? Do I need to help them? Do I need to back off and let them figure it out? Do I need to challenge them and actually induce some error to promote learning? And keep in mind that patients can be at different stages in each of these subcomponents. For example, um, if we're challenging propulsion by increasing the speed or the grade of the treadmill, I might have to help in the subcomponent of lateral stability by allowing the patient to hold on to the handrails. If timing and coordination are issues, then we're going to structure our sessions accordingly with obstacle negotiation on the treadmill, or we're going to be setting up obstacle courses over ground. If patients are neglecting one side of their body, then challenges are going to be skewed to that side to draw attention there, all within the context of walking. And during all of this, I'm closely monitoring the heart rate response through continuous monitoring, and I'm targeting a predefined appropriate heart rate range for that patient. I can't stress enough how important it is to understand where your patients are from a cardiovascular standpoint. It would be unsafe to attempt to maximize intensity without knowing where people are. And that's why the continuous monitoring is so important for safety. I'm also paying attention to how my patient looks during the, during the session and asking them how they're doing. And I'm triangulating all that information together to make decisions about treatment, whether we need to, to stop, to slow down, or keep pushing. You mentioned the, the four biomechanical subcomponents, and um, I think we can almost think of this as part of the, the framework, um, if you will, for high intensity gait training, along with the importance of specificity and intensity. But um, can you elaborate a little bit more on how using those subcomponents can influence your clinical decision making? Um, like when do you decide to assist or challenge and, and what are some other clinical examples from each subcomponent and, and, and how you might address them? Sure. Another great question. So as I mentioned, when I am evaluating and then subsequently making decisions about how I'm going to structure my walking intervention, I'm first determining 
where the patient is performing in each of those biomechanical subcomponents. Do, do they need help? Do they just need guidance? Um, do they just need try to kind of figure it out? I'm not helping, but I'm letting them figure it out. Or do I need to further challenge or augment air to promote learning? So to do this, I need to be able to define what is successful within each component. So for propulsion, success is directional advancement of the body. For limb advancement, success is taking a positive step, meaning that the swinging limb advances beyond the stance limb. So for stance control, success is the absence of trunk, trunk or limb collapse when, I'm, when the patient is stepping. And for lateral stability, it's the ability of the patient to maintain their balance while taking steps. Conversely, failure is the inability to meet this criteria repeatedly. Note that that doesn't mean consistently there needs to be enough air to facilitate a change in movement if change is possible, but not so much air that the patient is becoming frustrated or they're checking out. And what this threshold of air is, is different for every patient. And if they're learning, then you would expect to see a change in movement behavior over time. And I'm always trying to pull back the assistance. I'm, I'm providing and actually inducing errors in movement um, when it's appropriate, because that is when learning is, op is, is going to be optimal. So examples for limb advancement, if a patient is unable to take a step um, consistently, then I'm assisting with that. If a patient is consistently able to take a positive step, then it's time to challenge. So you could throw a weight on that limb or you could ask the patient to negotiate over obstacles. Those would be good challenges to the subcomponent of limb advancement. So with lateral stability, um, providing assistance would look like allowing the patient to support themselves on the treadmill rails um, or to utilize a device. As we start to challenge them more, maybe we're taking the device away or asking them to take their hands off the treadmill, or perhaps we're just downgrading to a device that doesn't provide as much assistance or offering our hands as opposed to a device or challenging that patient on uneven surfaces. Around stance control, we provide assistance when we offer body weight support. Um, we reduce that body weight support when patients don't need it anymore, when they're able to load themselves. Um, but then we frequently still keep harnesses on because we want that safety catch in the event that a patient does stumble to prevent a fall. And as we start pushing in that subcomponent, we're putting weighted vests on patients. We're asking them to negotiate upstairs. Those are good ways to challenge the subcomponent of stance control. So with propulsion, if we have to assist within that component, then we're doing that. We're assisting with physically advancing the device that the patient is utilizing to help. We are challenging them when we push them to go faster or we increase the speed of the treadmill, or we add a grade, or we ask them to negotiate up a ramp. Propulsion is a really good subcomponent to start with, to target, because it is a subcomponent that requires a lot of energy expenditure. And when targeting, we typically see a pretty good heart rate response, um, as opposed to the subcomponent of lateral stability, which doesn't require as much energy expenditure and oftentimes we have to slow down the task when we really start pushing balance. So oftentimes when I'm making decisions about, I, I know I want to get a good heart rate response. How am I even going to start this? Oftentimes I'll, I'll start with speed. 
um, increasing the treadmill belt speed specifically because I know that that is going to get the heart rate up and that we can maximize the time spent in those ranges. And then as the session goes on, and I also know that I need to target lateral stability, I'm going to slow the belt down. I'm going to ask the patient to take their hands one or both off, and we're going to work on walking um, without the support, which oftentimes makes the heart rate drop again. And then we're putting hands back on and we're cranking the speed again. So you're kind of circuiting between looking, looking at the monitor and using that to help you make decisions, but then also looking at the patient to understand what are the components that the patient is, is struggling with and, and how do I target that within my session? Okay. Yeah, no, that's really helpful. Um, um, one of the things that I definitely initially struggled with, and I think um, a lot of other clinicians can struggle with, is that we can envision being able to do this with patients who are already ambulatory, right? So we can envision challenging people really well, and, and that's probably the easier thing to do. Um, but what it's a little bit harder to visualize is how do I do this with someone who's a lot more dependent, who's has trouble potentially in all four of these biomechanical subcomponents, right? Um, like where, where do I start with, with, with that sort of patient? Uh, is there a specific area that um, I should target first or do I need to control certain things in order to make that look successful? Um, so just what are some strategies for a more dependent patient um, that has more than just one or two of these subcomponents involved? Sure, sure. So I think it's important, number one, to understand that the, the recommendations for the locomotor clinical practice guideline were around the, the chronic ambulatory patient population. So we're talking a little bit outside of, of the scope of the patient population, talking about people that are more dependent and also more acute, but this certainly is a patient population that we encounter. And how, how, do, we, how do we manage this, this patient population that is a little more dependent, who is, is much more complex? So it's tough, but it's not impossible. So I think the thing that you need to, number one, just ask yourself is, does the patient have the capacity and goals to walk? And if the answer is yes, then we know that they need to walk. Just getting there is a little bit more challenging. The active ingredients still apply. They're not irrelevant. You're just going to have to help them. The patient is, is likely going to need some body weight support. The best environment, I think, for these lower level patients to work in is on the treadmill. That's what I found in my experience, because you simply can just get more accomplished. Um, and we know that the amount of stepping practice is an important training parameter to maximize. So I'm going to be given some body weight support. Um, I'm trying to keep that as minimal as I can, but I want them to be successful and to be able to engage in walking practice. And I'm going to have to help to advance and place and, and load that, that weak or weak limbs. And I'm watching the heart rate monitor to gauge their response the entire time. It's not unusual for, for these patients um, to not get into higher heart rate ranges because they simply, they don't have enough active movement to drive it. And so maybe initially we're, we're targeting lower heart rate ranges and then we're working up to higher heart rate ranges as patients start to recover function. And just generally speaking, I think it's important to keep in mind that we don't have to start patients at, at the top end of the training zone at 75% of their heart rate max. We may not be able to get there for any number of reasons, but just level mobility being one of them. 
So the entire time that I'm working with these patients, I'm constantly trying to back off, trying to get them to kick in, them to activate, them to drive the movement. And we had this as a, this exact scenario yesterday during a, a residency mentoring session. And we started at a pretty quick pace with this individual to drive our steps on the treadmill. And we we're providing a lot of help. And then we backed off both in speed and assist for just a handful of steps to try to get the patient to do more. And then we drove the treadmill speed back up again and, and we had to help more. So as the patient starts to do more, you pull back. If they can do it, you stop helping as much. We, we're also trying to, as I mentioned before, reduce the body weight support. We're trying always to increase the speed and make them manage their own legs. Just because they can't do it today doesn't mean that it won't be better tomorrow. If, if you're, you're keeping your eye and you're maximizing the, those principles, those training parameters that we know are so important to drive recovery. Yeah, that, that's great. That's, that's helpful. As a clinician who's spent time treating patients with um, both the more traditional neurofacilatory approaches and now after implementing high intensity gait training for some time, um, have you noticed any differences in patient responses, their tolerance or preferences to one approach versus another outcomes, any safety differences? Sure. So regardless of what intensity level we are working at or we're targeting with individual patients, I feel safer now than ever because I'm actually monitoring heart rate response. And as I alluded to before, this is something that I was not doing. So regardless of, of what intervention you're selecting, automatically I, I feel safer because I know where my patients are at and how they're responding and what I'm asking them to do. My patients have not experienced any more adverse events since my practice has changed over the years. In fact, we've probably presented, prevented some adverse events. I would like to think that we've caught abnormalities or we've identified concerns that have alerted providers and resulted in an intervention, whether that was um, prompting a cardiac workup or change in medication dosage, or even identification of a new, more appropriate um, training zone for that patient. So regarding patient preferences, um, I found that most patients prefer the ability to walk and the regaining that ability to walk and are mostly interested in the treatment that's most likely to result in that outcome. So when the evidence is presented to them around high intensity gait training, most are willing to at least try it. Um, and we progress patients slowly and appropriately, for example, we might be starting at targeting 65 to 75% of heart rate max, which would be considered a moderate intensity zone. And we use the results of standardized assessments to measure a change in performance that is shared with the patient. The amount and the intensity of walking practice is maximized during sessions. So walking-related outcomes have definitely improved, but interestingly, so have the non-walking outcomes, like their ability to transfer or to balance or isolated strength and motor control. So I think there's a little bit of a concern sometimes with prioritizing walking that we're not going to see improvements in those other areas, but that definitely hasn't been something that we've experienced. Um, we've, we've seen it, it trickle down to improvements in some of those other non-walking outcomes. 
Yeah, so um, one of the most common critiques of evidence-based practice, um, generally by some traditional approaches, um, is that researchers can be too narrowly focused on outcome measures like gate speed or six-minute walk test that the CPG focused on. Um, and they don't always take into account all the personal factors that make each person's injury unique, um, like if they have perceptual issues or sensory issues or neglect um, or what their family dynamics are, et cetera. So is that a fair criticism of high intensity gate training? I think that we can all agree that, you know, patients present um, differently. Um, they have uh, different, different levels of clinical presentation. Everybody brings their own. Um, you know, family scenarios and, and comorbidities and things like that, that, that are unique to them. And it's, it's up to us as clinicians to take into consideration how, how these other factors, things like other health conditions or their prior level of function, their, their family support, what, what their expectations are for physical therapy, what, what their life roles are and, and what their goals are um, from participation in therapy and how all that plays in. So, my treatment plan and my goals take all of these things into consideration and my interventions are also structured around these training parameters or the active ingredients to promote a change in function that we've been talking about because this is what the evidence is suggesting to be important. Also importantly, there's data that suggests that the application of high intensity gate training interventions can affect real world walking, which is really what we're after in the end. At the end of the day, we want our patients to be moving more independently outside of the clinical setting. That's the goal. Um, regarding the use of standardized outcome measures, I don't really know how we would understand how our patients are responding to our interventions if, if we're on the right track, if we didn't utilize them. Just like we need to monitor heart rate, we need to monitor outcomes. And that's why recommendations from resources like the Core Outcome Measures Clinical Practice Guideline and the documents that the EDGE Task Force has produced are so important to consult because we wanna make sure that we're choosing valid and reliable measures that have the capacity to measure change and reflect um, our patient's goals for participation. So among many, one of the most challenging barriers um, to high intensity gate training is a, a clinic's cultures and belief. Um, so a clinician could, could learn about or listen to this podcast and learn about high intensity gate training um, here at a continuing ed course or on the neuropt.org website, which has lots of wonderful um, resources people should check out. Um, and they get really excited and they want to start doing it in the clinic, um, but then they might go back to their clinic and sort of be the lone person there that is into it. Um, and these clinicians can experience resistance from colleagues and supervisors. Um, so for you, was there something particularly convincing um, that made you as a seasoned clinician willing to make that practice change that you could share with others? Or do you have advice for clinicians who are in a situation like this? Sure. So um, I had an advantage when we were trying to push this practice change for, for a lot of reasons. Um, when, when I first started pushing this, I was already established as a senior therapist. And most of the time, I think people like and respect me. So I think that that helps tremendously. Um, other things is that our team is relatively small. Um, and at the time, 
um, our team in general wasn't heavily invested in one single treatment for philosophy. I was probably the most um, tunnel visioned, I guess I would say, with more of the um, facilitatory type techniques. And but everybody else around me tended just more more or less seem to treat with impairment based strategies. So when we were talking about making a practice change, keep in mind that we're just talking about a dozen or so therapists, um, not 100, which is the way it is at a lot of facilities. Not that 100 is impossible, but it just may be a little bit harder. So, so keeping that in mind. Um, I think another thing that was important is I just started doing it. I just started going right to walking. Um, I unburied the equipment that we already had and just started getting it done. I, I identified a training heart rate range for patients. I monitored heart rate response and we just started prioritizing walking from the get-go. However, that needed to happen for the level of the patient in front of me. Another thing that helped tremendously is I developed an outcome measure battery so that I could understand. And, and I did that because I wanted to understand how my patients were actually changing because of the interventions. And I found that people were changing. More people we found were, were walking, um, not wheeling out of inpatient rehab. And, and that's when I started to really share those outcomes with our leadership. And that's another factor that I feel like has been really critical in the success of, of our implementation is that we have a ton of leadership support and it would have been very, very difficult to experiences practice change if that was not the case and I shared the outcomes that I was experiencing with my patients with them I shared the evidence you know evidence like the moving forward position paper the clinical practice guidelines I shared whatever I could and that's what I would suggest to clinicians who are trying to light this fire is to get your leadership on board by, by sharing evidence and sharing outcomes. And not only that has that helped us to obtain equipment like body weight support systems and fall prevention systems, you know, inactive ingredients, but things that we need to get to the active ingredients and heart rate monitoring devices. But the expectation coming down from leadership is this is how we do this. Um, and that is the resounding message um, within our organization. It's, it's not an option. This is what we do. Another good suggestion is to find a partner, to find somebody to apply along with you that is willing to take the leap and implement because there's, there's strength in numbers. Um, and I think that helps tremendously. Um, also just realizing that change takes time and you have to be persistent and patient. Um, that is very, very important. Yeah, that's, that's really helpful. There's not necessarily only a, a need for a culture change in the clinic, but also potentially in, in what students are learning in DPT curriculums. Um, so I'm, I'm assuming that it's not widely spread in all curriculums. So how, how do you sort of see high intensity gate training fitting into a DPT curriculum that doesn't currently include it? And um, would they have to remove some things to make room or, or how, how would you recommend um, faculty go about that? Sure. Well, I can tell you it fits because it's included at the University of Evansville in our curriculum. And I know that because I teach it. Um, and as the years have passed and I've become more skilled 
um, in this approach and more evidence has been published around it, my, my teaching ha has evolved as well. Um, I think the approaches of um, things like PNF and NDT, the more traditional approaches, should be taught, but maybe from a historical perspective, not really a guiding principle. As they, they arose from a simplistic um, and incomplete understanding of the way that the nervous system works. We, at that time, were applying the best we knew and we certainly, certainly applaud those early researchers and clinicians for their huge contributions to the field. But we now know that the nervous system is hugely complex and capable of much change. It's not hardwired and it's not governed by reflexes. Movement quality and the progression of stability before mobility, sitting before standing, doesn't appear to be as important as we once thought it was. So our interventions should reflect what we all know seems to matter, practicing specifically what we want to get better in, maximizing intensity, maximizing the amount of practice, um, challenging with variability and choosing things that are meaningful to our patients and our curriculum should reflect that. I think there's a concern that if we omit things like PNF and NDT that students won't know how to touch or move patients. And I don't think that's true. We still need clearly to teach those things, um, obviously, but from more of a biomechanical physics standpoint with the principles of exercise physiology, motor control and motor learning serving as our guides. Right, right. Um, I think that was, super helpful. Um, do you have any uh, sort of closing remarks that you'd like to make before we wrap things up? I think just stressing that um, change is hard. And I think that we would be remiss if we didn't expect that our practice should involve and change over the years. Um, the things that, that we are doing now could very well be obsolete in 10 or 20 years and we'll change along with them because at the end of the day what we want to do is we want to choose not just what works for our patients but what works best for our mm -hmm. patients well thanks megan for joining um, me this morning i'd encourage people to check out the neuropt.org website under the locomotor clinical practice guideline there's a lot of great knowledge translation tools related to this conversation and the evidence that we discussed. Thank you. Hope you have a great day. All right. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this interview brought to you by the AMPT Locomotor Function Knowledge Translation Task Force. For more information on their work, visit www.neuropt.org.